So last week we started a series on looking at um, the area of marriage and sex and divorce in uh, in the New Testament. And so we started last week by looking at the Greco-Roman context. So before we look at anything in the New Testament, we really have to understand what was going on in the world that it was written to. Um, I'm sure I've said this before, but one of the best pieces of advice that I've received from one of my uh, PhD supervisors was, if you really want to understand Paul and just understand his thinking, the first thing you have to do is go and understand the world of the first century. What was going on in his world? Um, What was the way of thinking and the attitudes of that time? But then ask the question, how is Paul different? And really, that's the key thing we have to draw attention to is the fact that Paul was so radically different to his to the world that he was working in. You know, as we as Westerners, we read Paul and he feels familiar to us in so many ways because in the West we've been Christianized. Well, uh, the Western world is a product of the, Jude- the Judeo-Christian worldview thanks in large part to Paul. And so we just swim in this Christian culture. Even if you're not Christian, you're still a product of what was and what still is largely a Christian culture. And so we feel familiar with what Paul says because he really shaped a lot of the way that we think. Um, in fact, we've we've gone so far with it that when we think about Paul, um, we, in fact, when we read Paul, in some ways, um, Paul doesn't seem to have gone, doesn't seem to go far enough to where we are today. And, and so in a, in a way, we sort of don't, we, we, we sort of see Paul maybe in a negative light because, um, again, Paul hasn't, doesn't seem to be where we are in terms of our very sort of progressive values. Uh but the thing we have to keep in mind is that Paul was at the starting point of where we have ended up. Um, and so to really understand Paul is, that, is to go and see where he was, where, where he was coming from, and, and just how radical a thinker he actually was. And so we're going to move towards that today because we're going to sort of get towards Paul's thinking and, and, and what Paul was trying to get his congregations to think about these topics. Um, so the, the real point about all of these issues is that whatever actions we do or, or whatever, um, you know, however we sort of act out in areas of, say, sexuality, it begins with our thinking. Um, you know, whatever we do as sexual beings, we do because we have a certain way of thinking about sex. Uh, and so whatever that is, is going to express itself in our actions. Uh, and so what, we, what we're going to see in Paul is the way that he thinks about it and the way that he wants his churches to think about it, but also what we, from what we saw last week, which is how that world thought about sexuality. So what we really saw then last week is that when it comes to, to sex, when it came to sex in the Roman world, sex was an outworking of power and dominion. So the, the really, um, I guess, the, the, the context that we have to understand it is in the context of the Roman man. Um, the Roman man was, 
the really the sexual being, the, the really sexually active person in that society, not, not really so much the woman, more so the man, because he was the one who was seeking to be the dominant one. He was the one seeking to be the via bonus he, and to be the, so the, the good man, the one who was virtuous, the one who was the, the dominant one in the society, the, the big man. Um, and the, one of the primary ways that he uh, expressed his dominion and the way that he reinforced his dominion was through sex. His priority in life was always to be the active participant in sex, never to be the passive one. And this is why a woman can never be dominant. This is why she can never be truly powerful is because a woman can never be dominant sexually. She, she just literally doesn't have the, 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 the physical member to be able to do that. And so for that reason, she's always by virtue of her, uh, of her body going to be dominated. Um, and so the, for the men, they were the only ones who could dominate and the way that they have to reinforce and prove that is through sex. And so that would involve sex with really anything they fancied. Um, they certainly with their wife, but with a prostitute or with, um, a, you know, young kids or with slaves, uh, especially, you know, the preference seems to be amongst many men for young boys. Um, you know, what we would call pedophilia was par for the course. That was just really the standard thing. And, and that was really the, the preference for many men because the point was never about, the gender and the point was never really about the age the point was about who was the one who was dominant in that sexual encounter that was the only consideration in any of these things uh, and it was because again because through that is the way that you express your your dominion so there was really no sense in what we talk about as sexual sin that, that just wasn't a concept sin just wasn't a concept for for a greek or a roman person um it was only ever about power and, 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 and getting that power and, and then holding on to that and expressing that power, reinforcing that power in whatever relationship, um, whatever uh, relationship you find yourself in within the family or outside of that, um, you express that through sexual encounters. So you don't have sexual sin per se, but you have uh, sex that is disgraceful. And, we're, and the, the word used for this in the Latin is the word stuprum. Um, so this is where, you know, there are things that are taboo. Now, it, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it's not good form. This is just not something you want to be known to do because that is where you start to cross a line. Um, you know, that, that you just don't, you don't want to go there. So for a man, this is really sex with any freeborn citizen. So if, if this is a freeborn Roman citizen, whether, irrespective of whether it's a male or a female, um, and, and certainly not... A, a woman, a freeborn Roman citizen, female, is always going to be married anyway. I mean, girls are always married. A sexually available girl, somebody who's been through puberty, is generally always going to be married anyway. So if she's a freeborn Roman citizen, um, that's really the problem. She's going to be another man's wife, but it's the fact that she's a citizen. And so you just don't want to go there. Um, and, and, and even for you know, young men as well, like young boys or anyone who's a Roman citizen is freeborn. And it's not because of any sort of um, idea of sin. Again, it's the fact that 
it's it, it's a freeborn citizen, and so it's violating their status. Um, it's bringing shame on somebody who deserves the honor of being a freeborn Roman citizen. So you don't want to violate that. So so that's the real concern there. But a wife, on the other hand, that's a different thing because a wife who has sex with anyone other than a husband what is risked at that point is the paternity. If she does fall pregnant, the question is, whose child is this? And so a woman who gives birth to a child who isn't the proper, isn't the father's or isn't the, the husband's um, might be eligible for inheritance that by blood actually doesn't belong to this child. So it, it muddies up the bloodlines and that's the real concern there. And, and just more than that, if for any wife who has sex with anyone who other than her husband, it's a demonstration of his weakness. The fact that he can't keep her under control. And, and so the other way that he expresses his dominion is in the family. He, he has to keep his wife under control. Uh, and so if she's sleeping around, then that, proves that she's more powerful than him or, or, or she's, uh, ta- she, she, she's taking advantage of him or, or um, you know, rebelling against him. And, and that's bad. That makes him look bad. That makes him look like he can't control her. And so that's a threat to his honor. Uh, and so this is always going to be a problem as well. Uh, so her, for a woman, Sexual sin, for want of a better term, is sex with anyone other than a husband. And so this is why when she's honoured, so in, um, you know, when you see a wife, uh, the tombstones that we have remaining from the ancient world, very often what you'll see on the tombstone of a wife is the, you know, the various things that she's honoured for, that she kept a house, that she was, um, you know, that she was very passive and she was very submissive and she raised the children. She did all the things that a wife is expected to do. But one of the terms that is often applied to this woman is that in the Latin, she's a univera. Literally, she's a woman of one man. In other words, she only ever had one sexual partner, which was a husband. Now, there's an equivalent term in the Greek, which is the word monandrous. So again, literally one man. This is what she's honored for, that she only ever had one sexual partner, which was the man that she was married to. Now, what's so interesting about this culture is that there's no equivalent term for a man. There's no... um, there's no monogyne, for example, in the Greek to suggest that this particular man only ever had one sexual partner, which was his wife. There's, there's literally no word for it. Uh, and so it's really interesting in the pastoral epistles when Paul is giving the uh, requirements then for the deacons and for the heads of, for the leaders in the church, when he says that he, that he must be a husband of one wife, uh, literally, and, and he, he, he uses that whole expression, the husband of one wife, because there's no word to draw from. I mean, the very notion for any man to only ever have one sexual partner, certainly amongst the Gentiles, is just absurd. Um, And so when Paul describes that, he just doesn't have a word to draw from. If he was talking about the women, yeah, of course, he's got a term there, but he just doesn't have that for the men. He has to, because no one's ever thought of that before, that a husband might only have sex with one woman. And so it's not even in the language in, in Latin or Greek for this, for this idea to even exist. So the point in all of this is that the husband has dominion over everything. 
that's the point. That's what makes him the good man. And, and, and so virtue, via man, to be a man, to be virtuous, is literally to be this sexually dominating person um, out in the society, but also at home. Um, the way that he expresses his power at home is through sexual domination. And, and that, of course, extends to the slaves. That, that's, I mean, it's why you have slaves. One of the many reasons you have slaves is for this purpose, for sexual pleasure. Uh, they're practical, of course. A slave will do all of the work that you don't want to do, but they're also there as an outlet for your sexual um, pr- proclivities. This is what a slave is is there for. A slave is your property. A slave is something you own. It's something. It's not someone. And so whatever you do with your property is entirely your prerogative because you own that piece of property. It's the same as, you know, however I want to treat my car. Well, that's that's my business. It's whatever. It's my car. I pay for it. I own it. I can do whatever I want with it. And so it's the same case for in the household with the slaves, but it also extends to the wife. Now she has to be sexually available to her husband for whatever he wants to do. This is why she's there. Um, And it's not her place to question that or to rebel against that because his honor is at stake. And so whatever he wants to do, if he wants to do whatever he wants with her, that's his prerogative. And that's just how things are because it's about power. It's about dominion. And so the, the idea of sex, the, the, whatever sexual expression you find, it begins with your thinking. In fact, probably when it comes to the wife, the only thing that might constrain him is her honor. Now, there, now look, I'm painting the most grim picture I possibly can because we have to get a sense of the extent of, of where the thinking can go to, where the understanding can go to. It doesn't mean it was always this way, but if it did get this far, that's perfectly fine. That's The point is that none of this is off limits. If you want to go that far with your wife, so that's normal. Um, violence against a woman, violence against your wife is perfectly normal. If a husband beats his wife, well, she, pro- she clearly deserved it. If she, his... Um, done something to bring dishonor to him, then she can expect to be beaten. Even from what you might otherwise call a good husband or a nice guy, if he's beating her, that is perfectly normal. That's well within his prerogative because she's brought shame on him. And so she deserves a beating. And and that can be done in public. It's not even something done behind closed doors. This would be something done in public um, to demonstrate his virtue because he's keeping her in line. So I mean, the worst extremities that and we should, naturally, of course, in the West, we should be just appalled by this because, again, we have this Judeo-Christian worldview at our core. This this horrifies us, and it rightly should. Um, but we're talking about the world that was in existence before that Judeo-Christian worldview came along, where this is absolutely normal and expected. So violence against a woman, physical violence, sexual violence, and just any sort of sexual depravity is perfectly within keeping, perfectly within the normal bounds of a Roman marriage. Now, again, it doesn't mean it always happens. And it doesn't mean that a man is not capable of having what we might call respect for his wife. 
Um, that's certainly conceivable. And the reality of human behavior and human relationship is that when you put a husband and a wife in a home together, it's very likely that they're going to love one another and enjoy each other's company. That That is perfectly normal. We can expect that. Um, but it's only to say the extremity is is, is, is perfectly fine as well. Um, and, and that this sort of thinking is perfectly within keeping of a standard Greco-Roman worldview. And, and so I put up this example here, a couple of quick readings here to sort of reinforce the point of where this thinking is coming from. Um, the first reading is from a philosopher by the name of Plutarch. Now, Plutarch is writing this at the end of the first century. Now, I'm, I'm drawing on a ph philosophical thinker here because this guy is the equivalent of a university professor. And when you think about where cultural ideas come from, so many of them come from university because the, gener the generations are educated through university and they're taught how to think. Uh, they're, they're literally, that's the idea of university. This is where you go to learn how to think. And so your thinking is often going to be the product of that education. And so whoever your professors are, whatever particular worldview they hold is going to be largely influential on the way that you, not on the way that you firstly think, but then how you then go into society and begin to act and to carry yourself in the society. So this is what Plutarch has to say with regard to a woman. And this particular essay that he wrote, he's writing here, it is written literally for a newly married couple. And so this couple, um, you, you got a picture, they're, they're actually in their, you know, it's their wedding night, this marriage is about to be consummated, and you've got, an, you've got this philosopher in the bedroom reading this essay to you. Now, if you're married, um, you know, maybe think about your own wedding night. Could you imagine if there's just some old guy standing at the foot of your bed just reading out what the rules of marriage are? I mean, could you just, you can picture how romantic that scene is, I'm sure. Um but what's so interesting about it is that all of the instructions are addressed to her. She's the one who has to conform to him. Now, I say that, oh, that seems so terrible, but that's just so normal. That's exactly how it is. She has to conform to him because he's the one who's in charge. He's the head here. He's the one who is setting the tone for this marriage. And so she naturally has to conform to his honor and to his requirements. So one, one of the bits of advice that he gives to her is this. He says, the lawful wives of the Persian kings sit beside them at dinner and eat with them. But when the kings wish to, be, wish to be merry and get drunk, they send their wives away and send for their music girls and concubines. Insofar they are right in what they do, because they do not concede any share in their licentiousness and debauchery to their wedded wives. If therefore a man in private life who is incontinent and dissolute in regard to his pleasures commits some peccadillo with a paramour or a maidservant, his wedded wife ought not to be indignant or angry, but she should reason that it is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness and wantonness with another woman. So if you want to talk about what a virtuous man looks like or a virtuous husband looks like it's not that he's he he's sexually um has sexual fidelity towards his wife that she's his only sexual partner that's of course out of the question that's just no what are you even talking about that would just never be the case what virtue looks like is that he's going to have sex with prostitutes and do terrible things to them because 
he doesn't want to dishonor his wife. He doesn't want to do that to her. And so that's what a good husband will do. Will go and sleep around with everybody else to protect her virtue, to protect her virtue. That's about the best we can expect. So on the, on the end of the spectrum, which is perfectly within reason of this society, is that he will, and, and this husband here will certainly still be violent towards his wife, but maybe not so much as what another husband will be. You, you, you know, it's not so much don't be violent, it's maybe just don't be too violent all the time. Um, but he'll, rather than do all of those things to his wife, might just bring it back a little bit, be a little bit more respectful to her, particularly, again, if she's a good, upstanding Roman matron, maybe just bring it back a little bit and do that to a prostitute or do that to one of the slaves, which is what they're there for. That's what you have slaves for, to do those disgusting things to them so that you can, might be able to preserve something of your wife's dignity. But if you want to, perfectly fine, because she's your wife and that's one of her, one of her reasons for being there. So that's... This, this is from, again, this is from a leading university professor. So imagine, uh, you know, your Ivy League sort of universities, the, the most expensive, the most prestigious university on the planet today. And this is at the core of their ethical teaching. This is what is, what is coming out of that institution, is what is informing the most elite men amongst the society. So if that's how the most elite men are being informed, you can only imagine what everybody else is thinking who are just receiving something of a popularized version of these ideas being passed down into, into their own thinking. Now, I found this other reading, which I found quite interesting in, in dealing with this. Now, this is actually from a play. Now, if you think about what informs cultural thinking, the first is going to be the educational institutions, but the second um, area that is going to be influential is enter entertainment. So if you think about today, what informs our cultural thinking? Well, it's going to be the universities, but more than that, it's going to be popular entertainment. So what are the sort of things that you're seeing in movies? What are you seeing on TV? What are the uh, values that have been espoused in um, you know, whatever Netflix series you're streaming lately, uh, these are the things that have been constantly put in front of you. So whether or you're intentionally taking on board those values or not, when it's been put in front of you all the time and you're just immersing yourself in those values, they're going to inform you in some way. It's going to normalize these sorts of values in one way or the other. And so, you know, we, when, if, when you consider... Uh, Roman and Greek theater, sexuality was perfectly normal in as a part of what you see in the theater. Um, you can go to you and now being you know theater is the modern movie. Theater, everybody goes to the theater to be entertained, and families it's it's a family night out to go to the theater. So children are going to be there; they're going to see all of this. And so, in in a lot of the comedies. It's perfectly normal in a comedy to have sex played out there on the stage. In fact, prostitutes would be hired in some plays and there would just be an act of sex happening. They wouldn't even be faking this. This would be really happening on the stage, just live pornography happening on the stage to enact a sex scene. Um, sex was the prime, I mean, you think about, uh, a lot of comedy and it's, you know, it's a lot of innuendo and it's a lot of sex jokes and these sorts of things. And that's still true today. Um, but it was very, very true 
in the ancient world. Sex was the primary thing and it was the primary means of getting a cheap laugh in, in an ancient mime or in an ancient comedy. But they went one step further where it was actually performed. It was something that was done. You know, you've got actors who would come out with large fake penises hanging out of the front of their clothing to enact that these, you know, this, this is what role they play in the particular play. Now, again, this is not an 18 plus thing. This is everybody's watching this. Children are watching this. This is what the culture they've been normalized into. So you're getting this from the earliest age, right? You're seeing this played out in front of you. And so in the comedies, you're going to see, um, you, you're just going to see a lot of graphic, sexuality and and all of these ideas of male domination are going to be espoused now what makes a comedy funny is that it takes what is true in the society and it flips it around and it puts something in front of you that says could you imagine the opposite to this right it's the um could you imagine um you know a high status person acting like a slave well of course you can't imagine that in society because that would never happen. But let's put it in a play to just to have a laugh about the very notion of the idea of a high-status person acting like a slave, right? It's, that's, that's comedy. That's, that's what's going to make people laugh. So I, I, this reading here was so fascinating because it comes directly from, uh, from a comedy play. And it's just reflecting on this idea of marriage and just how – much of a double standard there is. I mean, the double standard was obvious. Everybody knew the double standard in that a husband can do whatever the hell he wants, but the wife is completely constrained to just having sex with him. Everyone knew that was a double standard, but you're not going to change anything. That's that's never going to change. That's just the way things are. And so if you want to make a joke, you might suggest that that's a double standard. You might point out the double standard as the joke. That's what is so funny about this thing. And so this is a quote here from Plautus. He's a um, sort of <clears throat> second century BC playwright. Um, this is what he has to say. He says, women really do live under a harsh and much unfairer law than men. If a man hires a prostitute behind his wife's back and the wife finds out about it, the husband goes unpunished. If a wife leaves the, the house behind her husband's back, the man thereby gets grounds to throw her out of the marriage. Would that there be the same law for the husband as for the wife? A wife who is good is content with a single husband. Why should a husband be any less content with a single wife? If husbands were to be punished in the same way, if one hires a prostitute behind his wife's back, just as guilty women are thrown out, I bet there would now be more divorced men than women. Now that's true. That's so obvious. If the same standard applied to men as what applies to women, there wouldn't even be any marriages. All the men would be divorced because all their wives would be throwing their husbands out because they're sleeping with all these prostitutes. There would be no married men left. And so, like, that's obviously true. But it's such an absurd idea that we could live in a world like that that it's, a, it's the stuff of comedy. It's a joke. So, again, just to really reinforce the point of this is the world that everybody is swimming in from the earliest age – you're being raised in a world where this is what is expected of the men. This is what you can do as a man. And it's, it, that's just default. That's the 
that's the the worldview that you're swimming in. You don't know how to think differently. And any time an alternative idea is presented, it is literally in the comedy. It's literally presented as something to laugh at because, of course, that is never, ever going to happen. All right. So after that's a, that was a very long introduction and maybe longer than – sorry, by the way, just with this series, I originally said that I was just going to do two weeks. It's going to be at least three weeks. Um, I was at a conference this week. And um, there was a great paper presented by Lynn Kohick. So she's a, a fantastic New Testament scholar that's written a lot about uh, women in the New Testament. And so she actually gave the paper on the first the first session of the first day. And I can honestly say I don't, don't think I heard any other papers. I didn't even pay attention to the other papers for the rest of the conference because I was just so just struck by what she was saying. So I've just been processing all of that since then. Um, And so uh, this will probably be at least a three-week series. We'll see how we go today, um, how far we're going to get into it. But I I think it's important. I really think it's going to be some helpful stuff that we're we're going to cover here. So what we've looked at then is the um, just the the standard way of thinking in this time. Um, This is the way that every single man thinks in the Greco-Roman world. And now when I, I say Greek and Roman men, because the Jewish worldview is obviously radically different to this. The Jewish worldview is ultimately what Paul is going to introduce into his congregations. But the men that he's dealing with, and especially in a place like Corinth, this is this is the default way of of doing life. You don't know any different ways because that just doesn't exist. There's no world in which we can we, we think in a different way. And so what Paul is having to do is to counteract this worldview right here and, and the, all of the implications that go along with that. And so what we're going to do when we come back from the break is to have a look then at what Paul does to start to counter this way of thinking and to bring about the change that is required in his congregations for them to just to start to be at a basic level what we might call Christian. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening, and I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which is really going to help to spread it further. You might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media. You can find the link for these in the show notes. You might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do this through the same link. But anyway, back to the show. So the world that Paul is coming into is this world, this way of thinking about uh, this the area of sexuality. And so if you're going to change a person's behavior, you have to change the way that they think about the issue. It has to become a natural way of of thinking in order for their behavior to be second nature. So this is what Paul is trying to do. Paul doesn't come along and just say, you must stop doing this. You must start doing this other thing instead. Because, well, one, it's never going to happen, but you, you need to you need, you need to transform the way in which they approach it so that they do it instinctively. Um, Paul's congregations are just doing what they've always done. They're doing what their society deems to be normal because that's what has been normalized in their thinking. Now, for us, so many of the things that we see in the ancient world are so shocking. But again, as we saw, they're doing just what is the natural way to, to act out these, these things. See, the problem with our reading of Paul, and the thing about Paul is that, you know, if you don't, if you don't like Paul, then you're just never going to like him. It's, it's going to be very hard to change your mind on this, and that's certainly not, not what I'm trying to do here. I, I think Paul is fantastic. I think, you, you know, Paul, you know, you, we can read Paul and think, oh, he's, so, he's such a misogynistic 
patriarchal person. Well, if you actually understand history and read Paul in the context of that history, you realize that it's the, the very opposite is true. Paul is the most radical feminist of his time. Um, he's the most unpatriarchal person of his time. It's just ridiculous how shameful some of his ideas are. Um, but you don't recognize that if you don't see the culture that he's that, that he's directing his teaching at. But that's really what Paul is. And again, so if you, but if you don't like Paul, you just you're just not going to see that. And so that's fine. I'm certainly not going to be able to change your mind on this. Um, but Paul, one of the things that we I guess we kind of want him to be is this you know, social justice reformer. You know, we, we want Paul to be this, um, this, um, this activist, this revolutionary person who's going in there and say, burn the whole thing down, burn down the whole Roman system and make it all Christian or, or make it all, you know, how we think that people should be. And I, I did maybe disappointed at the very least that Paul isn't that, or maybe hold it against him that, well, if Paul really believed this stuff, then he'd tell them to change it. He'd, he'd go in there and force everyone to do that. He, he doesn't work that way. He can't work that way. That's not how this world is. This is a Roman empire. This is a Roman tyranny. There's, there's just only, there's only so much that you can force on people to do or demand people to do in a world that is controlled by a very paranoid empire. I mean, it's, you know, and, and what we've got to do is, is stop trying to make Paul a Western democratic thinker that has this thing called free speech. That's just not something that exists in the first century Roman world. It's easy for us in the modern West to freely speak about what we think the world should be and then to protest and to actively try to bring about that change. In fact, we're cheered for that. We're celebrated for that. We see that today in so many situations where, you know, we, we, we're activists for change. That's one of the fantastic products of being, of living in the West, but try to do that in North Korea, right? Go and try and do that in a country that is literally a tyranny. It doesn't happen. You get killed for that stuff. You get silenced immediately for doing that kind of thing. You don't get away with that. And that's true of the Roman Empire as well. There's only so much change you can bring about and it's very minimal. And you really want to be careful about it because if you try to bring too much change, you're literally sticking your head above the crowd and you're going to get your head chopped off. So you just can't do that stuff. And so as much as we'd like Paul to be some Western 21st century revolutionary, it's not the world that he's in. And He's so he's working within this culture, trying to bring about change in the only way that he knows how to do that. Now, the other thing that we have to keep in mind when we read Paul is that Paul has an idea that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Paul's whole missionary drive is the fact that the world is going to end tomorrow. He was convinced that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime, that this whole world order was going to be burnt to the ground. He didn't need to do it. Jesus was going to do that for him. His job, his sole purpose, and we're going to see this throughout this week and next week and maybe even the week after, Paul's whole strategy is that we need to get as many people saved as we can because the world is going to burn tomorrow and all of this is going to be turned on its head. All of these systems are going to be changed anyway. The best thing we can do is just to get as many people saved as possible. Now, I'm going to do a series on slavery after this one just because I'm a sucker for punishment. And it's the same is true for that. Are we trying to tear down the institution of slavery or are we just trying to get as many slaves saved as we can 
because that's all we can do. We can't change these systems. We can't change the world order. The best we can do is, is to save people from it. And so this is his priority. It's kind of like, imagine you're on the Titanic and it's sinking and you're prioritizing making sure the deck chairs are, are all in position and that everything is nice and tidy on the deck or trying to overturn the class system on the Titanic. Well, it's not fair that there's a first class system. So I think we should petition that the third class citizens should be able to share accommodation with the first class citizens. I think that's a priority right now as the ship is sinking. No, your priority is to get as many people into the lifeboats as you possibly can and try to save as many lives as you possibly can rather than try to overturn a system that has been in place all since the beginning of time. Okay, so this is Paul is not concerned about trying to change the world. That is going to happen anyway within 24 hours. In the meantime, it's grab as many people as you can and drag them over the line into heaven. That's what he's trying to do here. And so when we, you know, we want Paul to be the activist, he just doesn't have that even as an option right now because there's no point in changing the world that is going to burn down. So that's one of the key things that we have to always keep in mind when we read Paul. What is his priority? And that, that priority becomes very clear. He states it explicitly, in fact, in the passages that we're going to look at uh, through this series. But there's also another factor that is restricting him is that how much can he actually demand of the people that he's writing to. Paul is writing to household groups, house churches, and the house church is built around an existing family. Now, at the head of the existing family is the man. He's the one who is going to bring about any change. And so when when Paul writes, he's not writing to these households and saying, you must do these things and stop doing this and start doing that. Like that, that might come through a little bit, but that's not his priority. He, he can't just go into, particularly when it's a household that he's never met before. Uh, we're going to see this later on in Ephesians. He hasn't met most of the families, if any of them, that he's writing to. And so he can't just go in there and start demanding that the head of this family starts taking orders from some guy that he doesn't know either. That's his family. That's his household, his prerogative. And what he does with his family is his business. And so if you go in there and start demanding, can you imagine you know, Imagine in your own household that you invite somebody over for dinner or not even that, you've never even met this person, but you get some random letter from some person from somewhere on the other side of the world that says, I demand that you start to treat your family in this particular way. What are you going to do with that letter? Well, if you read the whole thing, I'd be surprised because I reckon about halfway through, you're going to tear this thing up and say, who the hell do you think you are? Well, what are you, what are you even carrying on about? That's just not something that's ever going to happen. And so Paul's constrained in a lot of ways by his ability to even to be, really be able to make demands of people. But even when he does extend himself to, to start to express his authority as an apostle, He's very cautious to do it because this is an honor-shame society. It's an agonistic society where the whole priority is about being dominant. 
right? I mean, that's the point. You're always, you're the powerful man because you're the dominant man and you're never the passive person. Now I've, I've talked about that in the context of sexuality in you, you always need to be the active dominant person and never the passive person. But it, the same is, the same is true for authority. The same is true for just any circumstance where you're being told what to do. If you are being publicly told what to do, you are the passive person. You are being dominated by another man. Now, the emperor can get away with that. A governor can get away with that. A general in an army can get away with that because they hold that rank. They have that superiority. You are passive to them. And everybody understands that because everybody else is passive to that person as well. But there are very few people who can get away with making those sorts of demands of an everyday man because he is trying to get by in life to, and be on top. And so Paul, again, has to be very careful about how much he can make demands of the head of these families who are going to be the men because they're the head of the families. He's got to be careful about that because it could work against him in that if it's perceived that he's trying to dominate the man and thus bring shame on that man, he might get the opposite effect of going, well, who the hell do you think you are? Let me show you what I do to people who try to tell me what to do. So... He's got to he's got to tread a fine line here. He's got to be very careful about how he manages the people that he's working with and and trying to bring about the change in them. And so, in fact, the only way that he can really do this, the only way he can really bring about this change, is to change their thinking. It's to bring about a different attitude towards whatever the topic is, and in this case, sexuality. So he gives us away. He talks about this in Romans twelve. Romans 12, 1 says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy. Notice he says, I urge you. Never I demand of you, I urge you. Let me just encourage you. And this is this, this is the, the, the way that you generally give speeches in, 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 the, in the ancient world. You never make demands. You urge people. You, the, the thing about um, these men that we're talking about here their priority is to be to be seen to be virtuous. Now we go, this is nothing virtuous about the way that they're treating their wives. Well, no, in a, in a Western world, of course that's not virtuous because we hold a different set of values and virtues. We, we consider different things to be virtuous. In a world where domination and being on top is the virtue, then to be virtuous is to do those things. Um, and so when you give a speech, you urge people towards whatever the virtue is. You say, if you want to be virtuous, you hold the, the carrot in front of them and say, this is what virtue is. So let me urge you towards that virtue. Well, then you will naturally do this thing that I suggest rather than the thing that I demand, because that way you can become the virtuous person. So Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Again, think about what that's saying there. For a woman, her body is the property of her husband. So for her to give over her body to, another, to her husband is perfectly normal. And same is true for a slave. Their bodies are the property of their master. And so to give it to a new master, Jesus Christ, hey man, at least, that, at least Jesus doesn't rape me. So that's cool. I, I'm very happy to give my body to that guy. 
This is a different story when you talk about the man. And notice who he's writing it to. It's the Romans. It's literally writing this to Rome itself. And so he's writing to Roman men and he's saying, I urge you to offer your bodies. Don't, I demand you to give your bodies. No, no, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. (laughs) You are the passive partner in the relationship with God. And I'm not implying anything sexual there, of course, but you are now passively giving yourself over to another master. That that is going to grate against your standard Roman man. This is this is true and proper worship. There's the virtue. If you're really a Christian and you want to live a life of worship and a life that honors God, you do that by giving over your whole body. So that's that's the carrot. Now, this is still going to be hard to convince people of because, again, that's going to be seen to be the passive one. For This man has to go and explain to other men that my body belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, really? Well, the, the, I heard about the guy. Didn't he get crucified? Wasn't he the guy that was crucified for treason? Yeah, he owns my body. Wow, you are um, you're a woman. <laughs> There's no other way to describe a man like that. But then he says this, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, I don't, he's not demanding anything here, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You'll know the right thing to do when you surrender your mind, your thinking to God. Change the way that you see the whole world and in doing that, your behavior is going to naturally flow out from that new way of thinking. So what Paul's doing with this passage is giving them, trying to show them the most virtuous way to act. That's where you're going to receive honor in in this particular circumstance. Uh, So, yeah, I think you get the point here of of what I'm trying to say. Okay, so this week I had originally two... um, sets of passages that I wanted to examine. And where I'm going to be taking this whole series is into 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 7, there's a whole chapter there about marriage and divorce and sex and all of these issues. Um, and so that's really where this series is, is sort of headed towards. But before we get to that, we need to look at Corinthians 6. Now, I was going to look at that this week, but I actually think I'm going to look at it next week instead. And um, what I wanted to sort of focus on maybe this week, just to finish off this series, this, this week's episode, is to look at one of the areas where Paul is trying to change the way, the, the cultural thinking of the time, and that's changing the way of thinking in the marriage. Um, so dealing with these husbands and trying to get them to see things differently from this Greco-Roman worldview that we've just described now to something that is much more Christian. Now, it's a passage that you're familiar with, and I've actually covered it before when we looked at the role of women in the ancient world. It's very, it's probably the most controversial passage in Paul um, because it suggests ideas that are just um, anathema to us in, in many pockets of the Western world. Uh, yet it's interesting that, you know, it's, it's we are where we are because of passages like this being taken seriously. So it's the household code that we find in uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we're going to look at this again later on. We talk about slavery as well. There's so much to unpack in this passage. 
And this was sort of the real um, – so I, I, I started to see this in a different way this week as a result of this conference. So I'm going to share some of the insights. Now, I actually spoke to Lynn Coick. If you if you know who Lynn is, you know that she's one of the great scholars of our day. Um, and I just sort of ran some ideas past her that I had based on her talk, and she really liked them. So they're, they're endorsed by, um, by one of the best. So I feel confident in, in sharing them here. But it's a passage you know well. It starts in Ephesians 5.21, which says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the passage itself actually has its origin a few verses earlier that says, Be filled with the Spirit and then do all of these things. And one of the things of being filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another. Now, that's the driving point of this whole passage. Submit to one another. And the word submit is the word hupotasso. It literally means put others' needs before your own. Right? It's not be obedient and do everything they tell you to do. No, it's put others first. It's what you would generally expect from good leadership is that you are there to serve others. It's Christian leadership is, is what Paul's saying here. So he's saying submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Then he turns first to the wives. And he says in the English versions, he'll say, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, we always pick up on that and go, oh, how dare Paul demand wives to submit to their husbands? Well, because that's just what everybody expects of a woman. But the thing to recognize is that he doesn't actually say to the women, submit yourselves. In the Greek, the submit yourselves is not there. The, the Greek literally reads, wives, to your own husbands. Well, to your own husbands what? Well, submit. Where, where are you getting that from? Well, from verse 21. Submit to one another, wives, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. In other words, wives, do this to your husbands, the thing that I just told the husbands to also do to you, because to submit to one another means that wives submit to their husbands and husbands submit to their wives. And submission being, put the other one first. Put their needs above your own which is what a good marriage should do anyway. I, it, it should be tip, normal form for me to live a life that is serving my wife, is wanting the best for her in the same way she wants the best for me. That's what a good marriage and a good, good relationship should look like. So the fact that he's saying this to both of them, for the woman, it's like, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Um, any, any other good advice? Like, of course I'm going to do that. I'm expected to do that. I'm the woman in the relationship. I'm I'm the passive one. I don't get a say in the marriage, particularly, again, when you think that these wives are teenagers married to men who are in their late 20s, early 30s. These, in some cases, to men old enough to be their fathers. Of course, they're going to submit to those guys. That's the husband. That's what you're supposed to do. That's expected of you in the society. So he's not telling her to do anything that she's not already doing. In fact, he's not even telling her to do it. He just says, wives to your husbands, but the same command I've also given to your husband. But here's the verse that everyone then picks up on. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And so we pick up on that and we say, there it is right there. There's Paul, the patriarch, the misogynist, saying that, oh, the, the husband has to be the dominant one over the wife, and he's just reinforcing that into Christianity. And so it's just reinforcing the patriarchy. And this is why we need to throw off Christianity because it's just this patriarchal... Okay, all right, look, let's, let's just look at this term again. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now, the Greek word there for the word head is the word kephale. Now, we, in Greek, as in English, that can be translated in different ways. It can literally refer to your physical head, that big bone that's, that's sticking on top of your shoulders, the, the head, right? The actual head. 
but it could be metaphorical as well. It could mean the head as in the head of an organization, the CEO. Well, that was true. He was the CEO of the company. We've talked a lot about that. He, he was by default the boss of the company. But what it also means, as it can mean in English, is the source. So if you think about the head of a stream, where is the source of the water coming that is feeding into that stream? Well, that's what it always that's what it can mean in the Greek. And in fact, that's what it often meant in the Greek. Now, what was one of the other roles of the husband? Well, he was the provider. He was the source of provision. That's his job. He does prov- he provides the food and the resources because he has to do the work because she's at home looking after the children because there's no daycare and there's no contraception. So he is the head, as in he's the, her provider, and so therefore respect him as her provider because that's the role he plays, not because he's her boss. He is by default socially, of course, but Paul's not reinforcing a hierarchy that he doesn't that doesn't need to be reinforced because it's the default way of thinking. He's reminding her that this guy has a role to play, and so honor that. You know, put him first, build him up because he, he's your provider. That's just a good relationship. That's just a respectful relationship that Paul's saying here. And it's not any of any shock or anything that's a bad thing to ask for because that's just what everybody does by default. And so he finishes, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Now, again, it doesn't actually say that she should, she should submit. The Greek reads, now as the church submits to Christ, that's where the submit is, also wives to their husbands. So all he's doing is just reinforcing the point that he made before, which is submit to your husbands because everyone submits to each other. And the wife's going, so any instructions that I'm not already, no, just carry on. Status quo. Keep doing what you're doing. Be respectful to your husband. He's, your, he's the provider. And uh, that's it. She's like, oh, okay, that's easy. I'm already doing that. Yeah, no problems at all. Be, res- be a respectful wife. Oh, well, why is he picking on the wife? Well, I said he's not. He's not just picking on her. He just told the husband to do exactly the same thing because everyone has to submit to each other. This is the radical part. The radical part is not what he's saying to the women. It's what he's saying to the men. Now, in a normal household code, this is what we call the household code, and the way that these typically work is that you write to the husband and to the head of the house, and you tell him, you give him all the instructions, because he's the only one that you talk to, because he's the CEO. He's the one who receives instructions and makes any changes. So you don't write to anyone else in the family, because whatever happens to them happens through him. So he gets all the instructions. So here's the crazy part. Paul addressed the woman in the first place. The fact that she has any say in this is the most remarkable thing. The fact that she actually gets addressed at all is what's crazy about this. And more than that, she was addressed first. She gets addressed before the husband. That's the crazy part. I mean, you know, this this is the offensive part of this in the first century. The fact that she gets spoken to at all and that before her husband. And when she is spoken to, it's just... We'll just do what you're already doing. Just carry on. But then he has this whole lot more to say to the husbands, way more to the husband than to the wife. But look what he says to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, not just submit, but love her as well. See, you're, you have this idea that you just provide for your wife and then you can use her for whatever you want. And then if you don't want to use her, you go and use a prostitute because your wife is there just to make you the children and to, to look after your house. That's her role. Paul says, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to go a step further here. 
not just submit to her, not just put her first, but love her with an agape love, the love that's expected of a slave, a love that serves, a love that dies for the other person. He says, here's your example. He says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Okay, here's here's what I got from this passage this week. So husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he died for her. So husbands, die for your wife, lay down your life for your wife, not physically die, of course, but put her first in absolutely everything. Your whole life, husbands, is to serve her the way that Christ served the church. Now, if he's, if there are any men left in the room after this, I would be shocked because this, again, put Paul in his context, how do you think any dominant man whose sole job it is was to dominate everyone in his life how does he hear this? He's shocked by this command. This is horrific what he's saying. But what happened when Christ loved the church the way that he did? He gave himself up for her. What happened to the church? She became holy. She was washed. She was made clean because of Christ's death for her. Paul says, husbands, I want you to treat your wives the same way. You need to die for her. You need to lay down your life for her. And in doing that, she will be made holy. How is that going to happen? Well, here's, here's my thinking. She'll be made holy because you're going to treat her like a holy object. If you serve her, you're serving her as you would Christ. You're treating her body as a holy object. If you see your wife's body as a holy object, if you see your responsibility as preserving her holiness, protecting her holiness, you will never treat her that way. You cannot. It's not possible for you to treat her that way if you at the same time see her body as a holy vessel and it's your job to preserve and protect her holiness. You can't treat her that way. It's not not conceivable for that to even enter into your mind. You can't see her that way anymore. And more than that, her dignity by going and sleeping with a prostitute, no, 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 you, pre- you protect her dignity as well. You protect her honor by not doing that anymore. See, Paul doesn't have to say to the husbands, don't sexually abuse your wife, which is what he would be doing. You don't have to say that anymore. You just have to say, hey, look at her again. See that body as a holy vessel. How would you treat a holy vessel? Well, you certainly wouldn't do that. You'd, you'd treat it in an entirely different way. This stuff is just radical. This is this is crazy, crazy stuff that Paul's saying here. But then he doesn't let off. He says, he goes on, he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own bodies, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So your body and her body are connected in marriage. You're one body. That's how this works together. So however you treat her body is how you treat your body. Here's my question to you, husbands. Do you want to be sexually dominated? Well, of course you don't, because that makes you the passive recipient in the, in the relationship. That means that you are violated. You're, you're treated like a woman. Do you want that to happen to you? Of course you wouldn't. Then don't do it to her, because when you do it to her, you do it to yourself. 
So again, Paul doesn't have to make demands. He just doesn't have to. He doesn't have to say, husbands, stop doing that to your wives because that runs the risk of actually causing the husband to say, well, here's what I think about your whatever and, and have the opposite effect. No, no, he just has to change the way he sees the wife. If you see her differently, you'll treat her differently. And you're not going to do it because you were told to do it. You're doing it because you're seeing a new type of virtue. We're in a new community. We've got a different ethic, a different kind of virtue. And so I want to be virtuous. I want to be superior in this community. How do you be superior in a Christian community? Well, put yourself last. We'll put Christ first. Serve him. Serve your wife as though you're serving Christ. If that's what virtue looks like in this community, well, then I want to in on that because I want to be virtuous. You don't have to demand that anymore. You just have to see things differently. So Paul is just changing the way he thinks, changing the way that this typical Greco-Roman man, now these are Gentile men that he's talking to. He wouldn't have to say this to a Jewish man because Jewish men wouldn't do this. But to a typical Greco-Roman man, how he thinks about women, how he thinks about his wife, well, you can't think that way anymore. You need to think about her in an entirely different way. So Paul's changing the culture by changing the way that they think. And we've seen the way they think. And so you need to start to think differently and then do whatever comes naturally. See your wife as a holy vessel and then carry on. And whatever you do after that is going to be a reflection of how you now see her. So this is, this is crazy stuff. This is offensive stuff, but certainly not for us. It was just offense. The offense was to them. It was the men who, in this case, were getting absolutely shafted in, in this particular piece of command here. So Paul's got an agenda. Paul's agenda is to change the way that people think. And, and that's, I keep making that point. So what we're going to come back to next week is we're going to look at Corinthians 6 and Corinthians 7 and just start to unpack not just how to think about this, what the, the sort of thinking that Paul wants his congregations to share, but then how that should start to look in they're in their marriage. What are some of the practical keys that will result now from, um, from, from all of this way of thinking and, and looking at other areas as well, the issues of divorce and, and marriage and singleness and sex and, and all of these things. So it should be a lot of fun, um, but join me next week and we will we'll pick up on that and I'll see you then. All the best. <music>